Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, if you're listening today, I know exactly what you need. You need hope and encouragement. And my prayer is that the message you are about to hear will help you find hope and encouragement in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about our church, visit our website, northwoodbaptist.com, or follow us on Facebook. Now, get ready for a message that will help you connect faith to life. Right, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. So Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, go ahead and find that as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Genesis together. If you're new to Northwood, we've been in Genesis for a few months now, well actually more than a few months, but, but our, our, our desire here at Northwood is to simply walk through books of the Bible together and learn them and learn how God is speaking to us through these wonderful books in His Word. And so we're in Genesis 18, 1 through 15 this morning very first book in the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's okay because in the seat before you down in the book rack, you should find a copy of the Bible. Take that copy of the Bible and find Genesis 18 with us. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you and read it and learn about the God who loves you and desires a relationship with you. Uh, so, so I read about uh, a woman uh, over the past week or so that she was, she was uh, just going through her daily routine and she was, she was cleaning up the house and she was in her bedroom, cleaning up the bedroom and all those kinds of things. And, and as she was cleaning up the bedroom, she looked under the bed and saw some fuzz or what looked like fuzz and so 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 she um, got under there and was going to get the fuzz out from under the bed and the fuzz moved <laughs> so that fuzz um, it was a snake there was a snake under, I know right I mean it's some of you've had snakes kind of slither into your house before and that's never fun but to have one like under your bed I mean that I mean can you imagine sleeping at night and then that thing just kind of slithers up into your bed and slither I mean oh my goodness I mean so 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 she saw the snake under her bed and and she did you know what you would do she screamed and her husband came up and and so they're trying to get the snake out from underneath the, their bed and and so they get up under there this is where it gets wild there was more than one snake no 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 it, it gets better there were 18 snakes not two, not five, not ten, eight, 18 snakes were under their bed. And, and, and I don't know if, if, if what you would do in that situation, I would immediately go get the gasoline, right? Burn that house down and move, you know? But, but here, here's, now watch this. I kid you not, 18 snakes. You know where this happened? This happened in my hometown, Augusta. Augusta, Georgia, like just up the street. I'm never going home again, you know? I mean... <laughs> My goodness, 18 snakes under your bed. So, so needless to say, what she experienced on that particular day uh, was an unexpected, or several for that matter, unexpected guest. And I'll tell you that story to tell you this story. Here we are in Genesis chapter 18. And Abraham receives some unexpected guests. And one of those guests that Abraham receives in Genesis chapter 18 is God himself. This is an interesting story, and, and I would say, if not the most unique, one of the most unique stories in the entire Old Testament. This, this, is, this is odd. In Genesis chapter 18, God comes to Abraham as a man, 
and sits down and has lunch with Abraham. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any other stories in the Bible where something like this happens. But, but, but here's, here's what's really interesting about this story is, is if you stop to think about this story, God coming as a man to Abraham and having lunch with Abraham, in some ways, this story is a microcosm of the entire Bible because the entire Bible is a story of what? God coming to us. And God ultimately has come to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, fully man, fully God. And so I think this is a powerful story that reminds us exactly why God has come for us. I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with the Lord. I don't know if you're a faithful follower of Jesus or kind of like a casual observer of the things of the Christian faith or have no interest in the faith at all. But I I want you to know this morning, no no matter where you stand with God right now, I, I want you to be reminded that there is a God who has come for you. And I want to show you why. This morning, I want to show you three reasons why God has come for you and he's come for me. So take your Bibles, Genesis chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 15 together. Go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word together. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. This is what the Bible says. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought and that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Uh, Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for time to be together, to study your word together. And thank you, Jesus, that you've come 2,000 years ago. You stepped into your creation and you lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserve and rose on the third day so we can have a relationship with the God of all creation, a relationship with you. Father, I pray this morning that, that in this room, that, that as we are reminded by your word that you are the God who has come for us, it would, it would stir up within us a desire to walk by faith, to trust you, to love you completely, to live our lives surrendered to you. So thank you, Jesus, that right now you're speaking to us. As you speak, help us to listen with hearts that are ready to receive your word and obey your word and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. 
So I, I know many of you, you've, you've been with us on the journey. You've, you've followed along with me as we've walked through Abraham's life together. And, and Abraham has been given this extraordinary promise. Follow me. If you follow me, I will make you into, the great, into a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through this nation that I'm going to build through you. And now Abraham is followed with the, the, a promise that there will come a day that God gives him a child. And you know this, if you follow along, here we are in Genesis chapter 18, and, and, and Abraham is 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, about 89 years old. They've been following God now for 24 years. There is no child. But in chapter 17, you remember the story? In chapter 17, after Abraham's made some mess ups, and we've talked about in the story how, how we're a lot like Abraham in a lot of ways. We have these moments where we walk by faith really well, and these moments that we don't, and that's Abraham's story. And Abraham messed up. He and Sarah, when Sarah gave him uh, her servant, uh, Hagar, as his wife, and they had this child, Ishmael, and they did this whole mess up. And then 17, God comes back to Abraham and says, wait a minute, Ishmael's not the one. That child you had by Hagar, that's not the child of promise. You are next year, next year, Abraham, you're going to have a, a, a child by your wife, Sarah. And if you remember the story from last week, Abraham laughs, oh, come on, God, really? But, but you know the story. There, Abraham was circumcised. We talk about the, the symbolism there that, that from the seed of Abraham is going to come this great nation. Now, here we are. In Genesis chapter 18, and, and, and Abraham, I guess, is going about his daily routine. He's out, and he's under the tree next to the tent, and, and he sees these strangers kind of out of nowhere walking toward him, and he rushes. He rushes to get things ready to prepare a meal, and, and, and the Bible writer, the author of the book, Moses, he tells us in the very first verse who this is. This is God. God has come. Now, I know this is strange. I know this is odd. God and his, 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 his two companions coming with him. I, I don't pretend to understand everything that's going on with this appearance of God, but, but think about it. I, I do understand this. This is not the first time that, that God has appeared to Abraham. In fact, probably the most famous appearing of God to Abraham was back in, in Genesis chapter 15. Remember when we looked at that story when, when God makes this promise to Abraham that he's going to be a father of a great nation and they, they take the, the animals and divide them in half and, and God comes and he passes through the half carcasses. And if you remember the story in Genesis chapter 15, when God comes to Abraham, he was fearful. Abraham gets afraid and, and God appears as what? Fire, smoke. And his fiery presence passes through the half carcasses. And, and in that passage, we're reminded in, in some ways of the, the transcendence of God. You probably know what that word means, right? When we talk about God as being transcendent, he's big, he's above. He's far beyond his creation. He, he is on his throne, reigning and ruling over us. He's, 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 he's in charge of everything. And so you think about the transcendence of God, that he transcends his creative order. He transcends his universe. He transcends it all. And so in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is reminded in a lot of ways of the transcendence of God. He's large, he's big, he's majestic, he's powerful. Genesis 18 is different. Now God comes to Abraham again. 
after he's told Abraham in chapter 17 that within a year he's going to have a child, he comes back again. But he doesn't come as fire. He comes as a man. And so in Genesis chapter 18, what we see is, is the imminence of God. Do you know what that word means, the imminence of God? When we talk about the imminence of God, that, that not only is God transcendent, not only is he above his creative order, not only is he, he, does he transcend the universe, God is imminent. He's near. He's close. He wants to be your friend. And so here you have it in Genesis chapter 18. God comes to Abraham and it gets really interesting. Abraham rushes around to get a meal. He, he doesn't at this point know that this is God, but he does what would have been very common in that culture. Hospitality was a big deal because you think about living out in the wilderness and people traveling maybe and, and there wasn't a Best Western or a Holiday Inn. And so if you were traveling, you were dependent for your survival on the hospitality of others. And, and in this story, I mean, Abraham, if you think about it, he goes out of the way and, and you have this hurriedness that, that's in the story. He rushes to Sarah. He rushes to his servant. Let's make some bread. Let's, let's, let's kill the, the, the young calf and, and serve that, which would have been really hospitable because in those days, do you know what a privilege it was to sit down and, and eat meat at the table? I mean, that just didn't happen a lot. And so, so, and if you've ever been to another country, especially like if you've been on a mission trip, I mean, hospitality in other cultures is still a big deal. Remember, we went to Guatemala a few years ago, and, and, and I don't know how they found out, but the people we were with, they found out, I like fried chicken. I haven't got a picture of it. I got this, I mean, it was like fried chicken and french fries. Like every meal was fried chicken and french fries, which was wonderful. It was like heaven on earth. I don't know, I don't know any Spanish. Like I'm really bad at languages, and I don't know much Spanish, but I know this phrase, Papa Frida's. French fries. I know that really well because that's what I had the entire week. But, but they went out of their way to, to serve me what I like, you know, hospitality. And so here you have Abraham. He's getting this meal together. And, and, and this, this is strange. What happens? Abraham sits down and has lunch with God. I mean, just try to wrap your brain around that. Abraham sits down and has lunch with God. But if you think about it, this is what's so hugely important for us. This is not the only time in Scripture that God eats with people, right? You think about, uh, for example, and we're going to go fast through this, but think about it. You think about Exodus chapter 24. You, you know the story when, when Moses is on the mountain of Sinai and he's giving the people the law from, from, from God's voice. He, he brings up in Exodus 24, he brings up some elders of the Hebrew people. He brings them up Mount Sinai and there in God's presence, they eat. Or you think about the tabernacle that's going to be built by the Hebrew people under the instruction of God. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but in the tabernacle, there was this thing called the table of showbread where every day the, the priest would put out the, these 12 loaves of bread. And it was in, in, in some ways a symbolic reminder that what God desires is God desires to eat with his people. You think about the New Testament. You know this, that, that Jesus had a reputation for being what? A friend of sinners. Why? Because he would go into the homes of people like Matthew and Zacchaeus and, and other people that were looked down on in their culture and society, and he would what? He would have a meal with them. He would eat with them. Because you know this, 
there's something about eating with somebody that when you want to get to know somebody, what do you say? Let's go to lunch. For many of you in this room who are married, you remember your first date and your first date probably involves some kind of meal because around the table, and you can think back through the course of your life around the dinner table at home maybe or around you know, a, a table at a restaurant or a table at a friend's home. You can think about all the conversations that you've had around the table. Around the table, we do what? We build fellowship. Around the table, we get to know people. Around the table, we form friendships. And so here you have it. Moses, excuse me, not Moses, Abraham, he rolls out the red carpet, not knowing that who he's entertaining for lunch is God. And, and, and God, he comes to Abraham, and this is important because this is why God has come to you, right? God has come to us because God, like, watch this, God, watch this. God wants to be your friend. Now, wrap your brain around that. In fact, in fact, when you read through the Bible on several occasions, do you know how the Bible refers to Abraham? as the friend of God. In John chapter 15, when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said what? If you follow me, I consider you my friend. And isn't that good? That, that what God wants from you is he wants you to be his friend. The God of all creation, the transcendent, resplendent, majestic, almighty God of the universe desires friendship with you. That's good. But, but here's the question, just a couple. One, do you desire friendship with God? I, mean, I think every one of us would say, I, I hope anyway, that yeah, I want to be God's friend. I want to develop a relationship with God, but we don't give the time to it. We, we, we don't take the time to form the friendship. And you know why that is? You know why we don't take the time to grow in friendship with God? It's because of our view of God. The way you think about God in a large part determines the way you live before God. How you think about God affects the way you live before God. And I think for some of us, even as followers of Jesus, oftentimes we have the wrong thought process when it comes to how we think about God. Some of us in this room, even as followers of Jesus, when we think about God, we still think about him as what? The man upstairs. The big man upstairs. And so this, this kind of idea, yeah, yeah, he's out there somewhere and maybe I hear from him every now and then, but, but he's not really that involved in my life. Some of us still think of God as who? Santa Claus. Now, the reason why God exists is to give me the stuff that I want. And then we're disappointed because God doesn't always give you what you want. Some of us think of God how? As a, as a, a cruel taskmaster. Like, I read that Bible, and man, he's just mean. I mean, we're going to get to a story in a couple of weeks where he strikes down, destroys Psalm and Gomorrah. I don't want anything to do with that God who, 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 who has all these rules and then smites people who don't obey his rules. He's a cruel taskmaster. Or some of us think about God as what? An overly strict parent. We know he loves us. We know he even wants good for us. But again, it's kind of like that taskmaster, all those rules and so, so while we know he's there and he loves us, we're, we're these rebellious children that just are constantly rebelling against what he asked from us. And so we have these, these views of God and, and these views of God keep us from forming a friendship with God. But Jesus says in John chapter 15, what? Here's the kind of friend I am. 
I am the kind of friend who has come to lay down my life for you. You see, and, and I'm convinced of this. I am convinced that when you begin to understand the kind of friend that God is, that God loved you so much that he gave his son Jesus who lived the life you could not live and died the death you deserved and rose again three days later all to bring you in a relationship with him, well, I'm convinced that when you're convinced that, that God loves you so much that he gave his very best for you, that that will change your approach to your relationship with God. He's not Santa Claus. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not a cruel taskmaster. He's a loving father who calls you into a friendship with himself. You get to enjoy the blessing of friendship with God. And, and what I've discovered over the years, and you have too, this idea of friendship, and I've talked to you about this before, when you develop friendship with somebody, what does it require? It does require face-to-face intimacy, doesn't it? That you take that time to get to know him, that you spend that time in his word. It also requires what? Shoulder-to-shoulder activity. You, you think about some of the friendships you have, whether it's your spouse or someone else. You have those times when you're gathered around the table. But with our friends, what do we do? We do stuff with them right? You, you go on that fishing trip or that camping trip, or you take that, I don't know why you would do this, but you go on that three-day shopping trip or whatever the case may be, right? But, 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 but through that face-to-face interaction and that shoulder-to-shoulder activity, what happens? Friendships are formed, you see, and God wants to be face-to-face with you. And he also wants to be shoulder-to-shoulder with you. He wants you to work alongside of him, to join him on his mission, to proclaim the good news of Christ to a lost and dying world. And so the question is, do you desire friendship with God and do you desire friendship with others? Because here's the reality, right? That God has called you into a friendship with himself and then he's called you also to extend friendship to other people for the sake of the gospel. Now, we don't mind extending friendship to people that we like or or to people that are like us, but those difficult people, that person in your life that you just don't want to be a friend with might be the very person that God has put in your life to be a friend to. And then you begin to say things like this, I don't have time to form more friendships. I've got all this stuff to do and you've got your to-do list that you want to to get done and your to-do list prevents you from developing friendships, doesn't it? But but you know this, your to-do list is not as near as important as your to-be list. That makes sense to you? Your to-be list is far more important than your to-do list. Your to-be list, to be a child of God, to be growing in your walk with him, to be a friend of God, to be a friend to others. At the end of the day, that's what matters. And so just as we get started in this passage, that realization that God, back up for a second, God has come to be your friend and, and taking the time to grow in that relationship with him. But look what else happens in the story. This is where it gets really good. Abraham has this meal with God. God has come, revealing himself as friend of Abraham. And he asks, where's your wife, Sarah? Now, she's there. She's kind of in the background, helping get things ready. There in the tent, he answered. Listen, listen. So good, verse 10. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, underline this phrase. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Have you noticed this? Pop quiz. As we've walked through Abraham's story. Now, pop quiz. As we've walked through Abraham's story, starting back in Genesis chapter 12. How many times in the story has Sarah directly heard the voice of God? None. 
which is wild if you think about it. Because imagine Abraham's out one day doing his thing, and, and in chapter 12, God comes to him and says, follow me. I ain't telling you where you're going. Just, just follow me, and someday I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and Abraham goes home. God hasn't spoken to Sarah. He's spoken to Abraham. Abraham goes home. Hey, Sarah, come on. God, God spoke to me. Let's go. And she does. And, and all along the way, Sarah listens to Abraham. She's never heard directly from God. But this is interesting, right? Look again at what it says in verse 10. I will come back to you in a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. God's already told Abraham that. That's the same exact thing God said to Abraham in chapter 17. I would propose to you here in Genesis chapter 18, when God says this in chapter 18, it's not for Abraham, it's for Sarah. She's never directly heard the voice of God, but now she's hearing it with her own ears. She's hearing with her own ears from God, the plan of God. And look at how she responds. You remember how Abraham responded in chapter 17, when God said to Abraham, now you're gonna have a child, not by Hagar, but by your wife, Sarah, in a year. He laughed. That'll never happen. I'm, I'm old, she's old, not gonna happen. Now you see Sarah's response. Now Sarah was listening to him at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and, and getting on in years. And Sarah had passed the age of childbirth. And so she laughed to herself. Huh. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, well, will I have delight? Come on, which is interesting. Now, that, that word in, in, in the Hebrew language, delight, when, when you, the, the, you, Sarah's wondering, delight. Am I going to have the delight someday of carrying a child in my own womb, of holding my own baby? Am I going to have that delight? But it's real interesting. Now, now I'm not going to get too graphic, obviously, but, but that, that word delight in the Hebrew language, now watch this. It also carries with the connotation of sexual pleasure. Now, follow me. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. And there's another woman in the house. It's been a rough few years. You know what I'm saying? And so I can imagine Sarah thinking, I am 89 years old. To, to, to be intimate with my husband again and to have a child? You gotta be kidding me. There's no way. And then you see what happens. I mean, God hears. And, 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 and at verse 13, but the Lord asked Abraham, why does Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Listen to the phrase. Is there anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. You remember this because it sounds an awful lot like it. In Luke chapter one, there was an angel, Gabriel, who appeared to a woman named Mary a virgin, had never been intimate with a man, entrothed or betrothed to a man named Joseph. And, and the angel Gabriel says, you're gonna have a son, a child named Jesus. Now, Mary doesn't laugh, but, but Mary does say, what? How is this possible? And, and, and you remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1:37? Almost the same thing that God says to Sarah here in Genesis chapter 18. Nothing, 
Nothing is impossible with God. Now, now, what's interesting is that word impossible. Because that word in the Hebrew language impossible, it can also be translated as extraordinary or wonderful. There's nothing too wonderful that God cannot accomplish in your life. And so what what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 18, he's letting Sarah hear with her own ears what's going to take place. And he's reminding Sarah that, that, that he is more than able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He is able to do what is seemingly impossible. He is able to do what is too wonderful for words. And every one of us in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced that. Because God did the seemingly impossible in your life. Because you were on your way to an eternity apart from him. But God stepped in and he saved you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you've gone from death to life. Talk about wonderful. And and then you think about the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, right? He says says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. Do you you hear what Paul says? To him who is able to do above and beyond, above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul comes along, one who's experienced God doing wondrous and seemingly impossible works in his life. He comes along and he says to the church at Ephesus and says to us, there's nothing your God can't do. He is more than able. He is more than able to do more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Come and behold. See his wondrous work. And so, so just this idea, right, that one, God has come to be your friend through faith in Christ Jesus, but God has also come to do a wondrous work in your life. That work has begun with you trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, and that work continues through your sanctification as God makes you into the person he wants you to be and uses you for his glory. And the problem is, you know this, don't you? Because you've, you've been to church a million times. You, you know that the Bible teaches that he's more than able to do the impossible. But you know what happens? Somewhere along the way, you forget it. You forget the kind of God that you serve. You forget how powerful he is. You forget that, that he is able to work even in the, the darkest and most desperate situations. And, and so what happens is you and I, oftentimes, we don't look at life through the eyes of faith. We look at life through the eyes of despair. My life's never gonna get any better. It's so hard and tough. No good could ever come out of this. We we look at life through the eyes of greed. If I could only have somebody else's life, if I could only have somebody else's stuff. We look at life through the eyes of lust, if I could just get my hands on. We look at life through all kinds of eyes. But we, we oftentimes fail to look at life through the eyes of faith that see what God wants to accomplish in your life and in the life of others. We fail to see that, 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 that in our homes, God wants to do a work 
that is beyond our imagination. In our church, God wants to do a work that's beyond comprehension. I think about the city that we live in, and it's easy to be down on the city, and everything is taking place, not only our city, but our nation. And we fail to see with the eyes of faith that God is more than able to work through us in this city, in this nation, and in this world. You think about your job. It's a mess. I get that. But, but think about eyes of faith, what God might be able to do in your job, through you, as you live for the king, where you are. You see, we oftentimes forget to look through the eyes of faith, trusting that God is good and God is powerful in every situation of life you're in. Do you follow? Some of you know my, my, my love for ice cream. I really like it, right? And so, so I, I, I found this new flavor that's come out. I haven't been able to find it yet. I've got a raw picture of it. I, I can't pronounce the, the name of it, uh, but it's limited edition. You can't find it anywhere. It's sold out. And if you were to find it, it's $12 a pint. I'd gladly pay it. You know what the flavor is? Macaroni and cheese ice cream. Whoa, 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 no, stop, 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 stop. Because you know this. There's nothing better in life than ice cream and mac and cheese. And to combine those things, you can begin to understand why it's sold out and you can't find it anywhere mac and cheese ice cream. In fact, if you're out and you just happen to find it somewhere, would you text me 803-640-2498? Let me know where it's at so I can run and get it. I mean, I'd love to find this stuff, right? Because I, I'm convinced, right? I'm convinced. Now, now who's, who's actually going to try to find this and eat it? Who does not want this at all? Come on now, what's wrong with you? So just think about it, right? Just, just think about it, right? There's no such thing as bad ice cream. Have you ever had bad ice cream? No, if you say you have, you are lying. There's no such thing as bad ice cream. I mean, you, you put, I mean, I, not every ice cream is my favorite. Stacy's favorite ice cream is, is uh, mint chocolate chip. Not my favorite, not my preference. But, but, but here's the deal. If you put cauliflower and mint chocolate chip ice cream on the same table, guess which one I'm gonna eat? mint chocolate chip ice cream, right? In fact, in fact, check this out. Check this out. I was, we were heading in the car yesterday somewhere and we were listening to one of those Christian stations, K-Love or well, I don't even know what they're called, but one of those stations and they were talking about friendship um, um, on this particular station. And, and the lady talking said, that, and I kid you not, she said this. She said, she said, man, friendship is so powerful. I just want to develop friendships and all that's good. I, I agree. But she, she went so far as to say this. She said, I would rather sit at the table and eat broccoli with friends then be at my house alone and eat ice cream. I said, wait a minute. Right, exactly. Look, look, I I love you. I really do. I'd love to eat with all of you. But if you come up to me and say, hey, you've got the choice between my house and broccoli or your home, your house by yourself on a Friday night with ice cream, every single time I'm choosing my house alone with my ice cream, a big carton of Bluebell. You see what I'm saying? Because I am convinced, I am convinced there's no such thing as bad ice cream. It's all worth consuming at some point in your life, you see. And I'll tell you that silly story to tell you this. There's also no such thing, now watch this. There's no such thing as a bad God. Did you hear me? There's no such thing as a bad God. Nowhere in scripture do we come away with this idea that God is out to hurt you, to harm you, to make your life miserable. No, it's the very opposite. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be great and every day is going to be filled with puppy dogs and roses. It doesn't mean that, right? 
But, but, but when you read through scripture, you come away with this very clear understanding that, that God is a good God and everything he does is for your good. And so since you know that, right, you can look to him with the eyes of faith. God, I believe, I believe that, that wherever I am, whatever situation I am, whatever I'm going through, I can look to you in faith, knowing that you're going to work in me and through me for my good and your glory. Do you see it? Oh, my friend, lift up your eyes. Quit looking at your life through the eyes of despair or the eyes of greed or the eyes of anger and look at your life through the eyes of faith. And then now watch this, this God who wants to do a wondrous work in your life, not only look at your life through the eyes of faith, but live your life with a heart of faith. Think about it. Here you have Sarah. Who knows how long it had been since she'd been intimate with her husband. She hears this voice of God and and, and her first reaction was to laugh and and then God scolds her for laughing. You see that in the passage. But you know what she does? She eventually takes a step of faith. You know how I know? Because they had a child. And so, so, so eventually she's intimate with her husband again. And then God brings forth a child from her womb, you see? And so I tell you that to tell you this. Not only seeing life the eyes of faith, but, but living life with the heart of faith because some of you in this room, you do see it. You see that, that God wants to do a work in your family. I mean, you can envision the day that your rebellious teenager comes back home. You can envision the day where things are better at work and you've led people to faith in Christ. You can envision the day that you're living on mission in a particular area of your life. But here's the problem. You see it. You even want it. But you don't take any steps of faith to actually see it come to pass in your life. You never pray with your kids. You never talk about the things of God at work. You never take those necessary steps of faith to experience that work that God wants to do in you and through you. And right now, I, I know it. There are some of you in this room. You, you maybe years ago, you, you had this desire to, to, I don't know, be an international missionary. You, you kind of felt like that was the calling, but you never did anything to follow up with that. There's some of you in this room, I mean, just to be honest, you, you've experienced this calling maybe to do what I do, to pastor a local church. But you never took any steps of faith toward that. You see what I'm saying? That, that for a lot of us, we have these eyes of faith. We see what, what God wants to accomplish, but we never take the steps of faith to see it come to pass. And I just want to remind you, God has come. God has come to be your friend and God has come to do a wondrous work in your life, to grow you in Christ and to use you for the sake of his glory and his mission, you see. See with the eyes of faith and live with the heart of faith. But I want you to see one more thing in this text when we're done. God has come to show you his wondrous work. He's come to be your friend. He has come for your joy. Oh, this is so good. You see how the story ends in Genesis chapter 8. God says, did, did, I heard her laugh. And Sarah says, no, I didn't laugh. And oh, but you did. And, and then the story kind of tails off and we head into the next scene that we'll look at next week. But you know what's going to happen? In Genesis chapter 21, I don't know, I don't want to get too far ahead in the story, but in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. And they're going to name that child what? Isaac. 
And if you've ever read through Genesis before, or you've sat in a sermon about uh, this particular story, you know what the name Isaac means. Child of laughter. Because if you think about it, back in chapter 17, when, when, when God told Abraham he was going to have a son with Sarah, within a year, he laughed. And in chapter 18, when Sarah heard it, she did the same thing. She laughed. And when they laughed, it was laughter of cynicism. <laughs> That'll never happen. It was laughter of doubt. Really, how? But in chapter 21, when Sarah holds that child that she carried in her own womb, when she holds that child in her arms, don't you know it? She laughed. Not with cynicism, not with doubt, but with joy and amazement at the wondrous work of God. Look, look at what God has done. Look at this gift that God has given me. He was faithful to his word. Joy. Can't help but think about the Virgin Mary when she gave birth to the baby Jesus. And she, she held baby Jesus in her arms on that night in Bethlehem. She laughed. Not like, ha, ha, laugh, man, this is really funny, but, ha, can you believe it? Me, someone who's never been married, a virgin, never been intimate with a man. I am holding a baby that God has given me. And I can't help but think that in those moments when, when Mary held Jesus in her arms for the very first time that, that she must have. I know that, that Jesus and Isaac are different and, and Jesus' name doesn't mean laughter, but I can't help but think she laughed and rejoiced over what God had done. But here's reality. The laughter for Mary didn't last very long, did it? She would watch her son grow up. And she would watch her son leave home and, and, and live as a, as a kind of a homeless, itinerant preacher, what every mom wants for their son, right? And there was even a time when Mary sent for Jesus to come home and, and Jesus said, no. And then she would watch because she was there. She was there at the foot of the cross on the day that Jesus was crucified. She watched and she saw how Jesus had been mistreated how he'd been beaten and spat upon. And it's interesting to me that when Isaiah, the great prophet in Isaiah 53, talks about Jesus, do you know what Isaiah doesn't call Jesus? He doesn't call Jesus the man of laughter. You know what he does call Jesus? The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And I can't help but think that, that, that on that day when Christ was crucified, when they took his body down from the cross and, and they were anointing his body for burial to put him in a borrowed tomb. I can't help but think that Mary was there holding in her arms again Jesus, but not laughing this time, crying because she held in her arms the man of sorrows, the one who suffered the punishment that we deserve, the one who willingly experienced the rejection that we deserve, the one who was mocked on our behalf, the one who died in our place, the death that you and I deserve because of our sinful rebellion against the God of all creation. 
There in her arms, after he had came down from the cross, she held the man of sorrows who, who carried our grief and carried our burdens and carried our sin to a cross. But then, three days later, Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, burst forth from a tomb and left it empty. And now here we are 2,000 years later. And what are we all doing who are followers of Jesus? What are we all doing? Laughing. Can you believe it? You were on your way to an eternal hell because of your sin, but God stepped in. He has come and he has changed everything. Can you believe it? You're a child of God. You have inherited, not because of anything you've done, but all because of what he has done. You have inherited life eternal. You see, the God of all creation has come and he came as the man of sorrows so that you could become a man, a woman of laughter. Overjoyed and what God has done for you. You see it? Jesus is the true and better Isaac because he has brought everlasting, indescribable, unfathomable joy. And this morning for you, you can make the decision to walk in that joy. And here's what I found about walking in joy. You know what walking in joy takes? Lots of small choices every single day, doesn't it? It takes that choice tomorrow morning when you get up. I'm going to be a friend of God. I'm going to spend time in his presence. I'm going to get to know him. It takes that, that, that small choice of, for the sake of love for somebody else, I'm going to bless them in the name of Jesus. It takes that, that small choice of, you know, I don't have a lot right now, but I'm still going to give generously. It takes that small choice of, you know what, my, I've been saying it for years and I haven't done it, but I'm finally going to go on that, that first mission trip that I've wanted to go on for so long. It, it takes those, those small decisions. And what I've found is over time, those small decisions just to honor the Lord and taking those steps of faith and, and walking in obedience, those small steps, those small choices, they eventually pay off huge joy dividends. That the more I walk with God, the more I make those choices to be in the center of his will, the more joy I experience. And Christ has come for my joy, you see. And this morning, this morning, this morning, there's some of you in this room or even watching online who for the very first time need to experience the joy of knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. And this morning you can. Whether you're watching online or in this room, you can make a decision to give your life to the joy giver, the one who has come, who has come to be your friend, who has come to do a wondrous work in your life, a wondrous work today to forgive you of your sins and give you life abundant and eternal. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, today is the perfect opportunity for you to do so. In the corners of this room, there are two crosses. And I want you to listen to me. You know it. Deep in your heart, you know if you belong to him or not. You know if you've made that decision or not to follow him. And if you've never made that decision, what's holding you back? Because I'm telling you, there is a God who is longing to do a wondrous work in your life as you submit to him. And so why not? Why not today turn from your sin and turn to the one who died for you and rose again for you so you could experience a joyous relationship with the God of all creation? I didn't say an easy life. I didn't say a life with no troubles, but a joy-filled life. If you're watching online, you're going to see a number appear on the screen. Text the name Jesus to that number, and we'll reach out to you very soon and help you begin a relationship with Jesus. So whether you're online or in this room, today make a decision 
to give your life to Jesus. Go to one of those crosses. There'll be somebody there who's ready to pray with you and help you begin a relationship with him. Or maybe you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus. And, and maybe this morning, the call on your life as a follower of Jesus is just to renew that friendship with God. Or, or maybe it's to look at life differently because you, you know it. You've been looking at life through the eyes of despair, thinking nothing will ever get any better. The day God's saying, no, I'm, I, I've come to do a wondrous, seemingly impossible work in your life. Look through the eyes of faith and live in faith. Take those steps that he's calling you to take this morning. Maybe this morning is gathering around this, this front area and just crying out to God, renew me in joy. However, God is leading you to respond this morning. You respond by faith. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for time in your word. For every person here, I pray they would know the joy of Jesus Christ. For that man, that woman who's never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus, I pray that person would come now, trusting you as Lord. Father, for, for those of us who are your followers, may we learn again to walk in joy, to enjoy friendship with you and to live with the eyes and heart of faith. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We rise to your feet as in a time of invitation. You come now as the Spirit of God leads you.